Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. This is the Paul Leslie Hour, the last episode of 2018. Welcome to it. Our special guest is one of the great thinkers and writers of our time, a great pop culture deconstructionalist. Chuck Klosterman is a best-selling author. He's written several acclaimed works of nonfiction. Some of the recognizable titles would include Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, Fargo Rock City, I Wear the Black Hat. He's also written two novels, Downtown Al and The Visible Man. A music critic and sports writer, he has contributed to such publications as The New York Times, The Washington Post, GQ, Esquire, Spin, and The Guardian, just to name a few. Chuck Klosterman has been called a cultural critic. I think his greatest ability may be observation. He's interviewed many people who had made an impact on the popular culture, from Britney Spears to Eddie Van Halen and Taylor Swift. He's written about everything from ABBA to Pepsi. And before we start the interview, I would just like to thank Jason Burge, who could be called something of a Chuck Klosterman expert, for all of his help in researching this interview and providing resource materials. Chuck Klosterman, thank you so much for allowing yourself to be interviewed. Oh, my pleasure. Do you have any recent cultural fascinations? What's been occupying your mind lately? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I have two kids now, and that has shifted sort of the way I consume the culture. Um, I used to just sort of go through life kind of having a shallow relationship with almost everything that was happening in culture. Now, it tends to be highly focused in short periods of time. So... Oh, recently I watched on A&E The Clinton Affair, kind of a, a mini-series about Bill Clinton's relationship with Monica Lewinsky. And I was just kind of consumed by that while I was watching it. Last night I started watching a show called Patriot, which is a Amazon show about a spy who's also a folk singer. I follow sports a lot, but I can't really answer the question the way I would have 10 years ago because I don't think I'm like that anymore. I mean, my mind still works that way, but my kind of level of participation in the world is less. Yeah. So your relationship with the popular culture is, is changing. It is. Yes, very much. It really has over the last five years. Um, you know, I, I think before I had kids, it was almost as if anything that was interesting could be a, kind of an intellectual and emotional priority in my life. And it's very rare that that happens now because my emotions and my priorities have shifted so much. So I still follow all these things probably more than the average person. But, you know, I am a different guy than I used to be. You know, you mentioned Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. Okay, that's my, that was my second book. I wrote that when I was 29. If somebody were to read that book today, they would have a better understanding of what I was like at 29 than I do. Because in my memory, I would just be projecting the way I am now onto that 29-year-old body. But I think from sort of a uh, like a 
the perspective of what was sort of driving me and what I cared about and all of those things, it's almost like it was written by a totally different person. Well, what's something you cared about that you no longer care about? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know if it's – maybe I misspoke by saying it's, I don't care at all, but I don't care as much. Here's something that uh, has changed. I used to feel uh, a, a degree of obligation to have a working understanding of things I didn't even like. Uh, there would be, a, say, a genre of music would emerge or everyone would be sort of discussing a specific film or book. And I would kind of work from the perception that, like, well, I need to understand this. Like, I need to understand this. How can I be somebody writing about the popular culture if I know nothing about, you know, uh, what would be an example of, like, the band Fisher Spooner or something when, when, when Electro Clash was – kind of the music of the moment. Now I, I don't do that. So one thing that I don't care as much about as I used to is kind of performing my taste in public. Now, if I talk about something in public or if I write about something, it's probably an illustration of the fact that I really do like it. I mean, I think the only piece of journalism, if you call it that, I published this year was I ranked all 131 Van Halen songs and wrote about them for New York Magazine. You know, and that's something I did kind of for fun because I was like, well, it'd be kind of fun to listen to Van Halen constantly for two months. <laughs> but I think there was a time when I was a younger person where I would have said, name any band, even if I hate them, I'll listen to all this and, and rank all these songs. And I don't think I'd do that now. On the note of loving something, in fairly recent times, KISS announcing that they were going to call it a day. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Is there any melancholy there? Oh, no, not at all. Because, you know, <laughs> KISS now is just like a simulation of what KISS is. It's just a, it's just an entity that, that exists. That They're not creating any kind of new interesting music. I don't even think they perceive themselves as artists in any way paul stanley's voice is no longer competitive i mean it's just like okay granted they're doing the last show here in portland in february i am going to that show in my i'm like i'll go see it sure but the idea that this is a loss to me that's not the case at all like you know it's it, it's kiss exists as an object of fascination in my mind they don't need to be in the world it's really interesting. I am a KISS fan as well. And I think it's the one band that it's interesting because you can be fascinated and like them, but really not have any emotional connection to them. That is the interesting thing about KISS. And what has happened is this. Because KISS has always viewed itself purely as a commodity, that they never you know, pretended to say that the only reason they were a band is because you know, they love music so much they couldn't do it or like they couldn't do anything else or or that that they never kind of framed themselves the way like Bruce Springsteen or The Clash or whatever would frame themselves. Now, some people find that very distasteful. But one of the things it does is it kind of allows the fan base to say, well, we own this as much as the band does. And a KISS fan can be objective about KISS 
the way a you know a REM fan usually cannot about REM. Uh, you know, I'm, and I'm not saying that that's not a criticism of of those groups. I'm just saying that being a Kiss fan is different. I mean, part of loving Kiss is hating Kiss. That's part of it. Making fun of them, you know. Like, did you? Uh, I think you told me when you contacted me. Did you interview Bruce Kulick? I did. How did that happen? What was the circumstance? <laughs> Uh, he was appearing with Grand Funk Railroad, and the day before, he was doing a guitar clinic. And I just reached out to him, and I actually like his solo albums a lot, and we did this we did this interview at a music store. Oh. You're right. I think you said in one of your books that he seems like a cool guy who has a sense of humor about things. Well, he does, and the reason I said that is because in one of my early books, in Killing Yourself to Live, there is a section of the book where I'm driving across the state of Montana, and I'm just kind of thinking about girls and women in my life I've dated. And for some reason, I decided I'm going to connect or compare every girl I've been with to a member of KISS, <laughs> including not just the four original members, but every, all the replacement members, too. And there was this one woman who I dated kind of briefly who was a photographer and and she was a real good person, but I think in retrospect, I probably wasn't a very good boyfriend and may have taken advantage of things. And I was like, well, she's kind of like Bruce Kulick to me. And Bruce Kulick read this and wrote on his website how funny he thought it was. <laughs> so I was like, well, that's, Bruce Kulick's a great guy. Here's a guy who really understands his role in society. He likes the fact that someone views him similar to an ex-girlfriend they didn't like that much. Like, you know, it's <laughs> Now, do you think, because I think Gene Simmons has used the word product many times to describe KISS, do you think that something that all of the members of KISS have talked about many times, and that is KISS going on without any of the original members, do you think that that's definitely going to happen? Uh, I think it should happen. I think because it, uh, it, it would really, in a way, validate what they've always claimed. That what they've always said about themselves or tried to present as their ideology necessitates that they see the band as a concept as more meaningful than any of the individual components. Um, it's, it's, you know, the Kiss put out a record called The Elder in like 1981 and, and they really tried to make an album that, that would be respected by critics and sort of elevate the way they were perceived that they wouldn't be seen as just kind of a, you know, a kitty band who was just sort of like after, you know, grabbing money or whatever. And that record failed. And from that point forward, they sort of looked at that failure and they, they, I think, kind of internalized it and, and found a way to kind of conclude that the only kind of art that matters is art that has a commercial backing. That there's no reason to do anything in this world, you know, if you're not going to make money by doing it. And as a consequence, the idea of what KISS is matters more than the members or the songs or anything else. And and KISS could continue on. I mean, there you know, it's like there was the period in the 80s and the early 90s when KISS did not wear makeup. And there were KISS tribute bands that were fun to see because it was like you were seeing this group who you thought you'd never be able to see in life and, and assume would never exist. They can just keep doing that, but actually own the rights to it. And and uh, I guess I would support this. I would support KISS continuing with no members. <laughs> it, 
Is there any era of your life that you have a nostalgia for? Oh, almost all of it. I mean, that's the way nostalgia works, right? It's like nostalgia is is the ability to 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 make your own past seem meaningful, which is why people can be nostalgic for bad periods of their life. Like there are people who had terrible experiences in high school and they'll hear a song from that time and be transported back to that seemingly terrible time. But the feeling you get is positive because one for one thing you've overcome whatever problem was there. And for another thing, it's like in order for your life to be important, your own history has to be important. So I would say that I have varying levels of nostalgia for every period of my life. And it wasn't that every period of my life was great, but my memory of those times, the way it works kind of in retrospect is always edifying. I mean, I, I have lots of photo albums from various periods of my life. What I tried to do was take a photo of everybody who in any way seemed important to me, even if they just sort of had sort of kind of passing significance. And I look at those photos and the only thing that I think about are the good times. I mean, I, I never look at a picture of an ex-girlfriend and think about us fighting. That never happens to me. I mean, I know it did. I know that some of my relationships have been mostly fighting, but that's not what I think about when I think back. So, I mean, the short answer is yes. I, there's, there's really no period of my life I'm not nostalgic for. You were mentioning listening to all of these Van Halen songs. Now, aside from doing that, is there any new music? Is there any band or artist that you can maybe cue our listeners into? Well, I mean, yeah, like I mean, Car Seat Headrest, I think, is one artist that is a kid. From, his name is Will Toledo, I believe. He's kind of a he's got a band. The band is really just him. I think he's an incredibly talented person. You know, uh, uh, there's probably a handful of other acts if I thought hard enough. Oh, um, oh, Best Coast. I think she's a real talented person. At the same time, I must admit that one thing that streaming has created and allowed for me to do is sort of experience music in reverse. Because, you know, I love the music really that kind of predates my experience. So I'm born in 72. I started getting into music seriously in like 1983 when I'm like 11 years old or whatever. But the music I love the most is from that 70s period. But I can't go back, or at least I couldn't go back and buy every record from every minor artist from that period just to get a sense of it. But with Spotify, I can. I can just go back and listen to some record by Grand Funk Railroad from 1974 just because I want to see what it sounds like, you know. So what I'm really doing is I'm moving backwards through time. Like I've kind of moved through the 70s. I'm now kind of going backwards through the 60s and really entering almost the late 50s where like I'm listening to like Little Richard and things like that now. I assume in 10 years I'll be into jazz or something because I'm just moving back. Hmm. Very interesting. I was looking at the stack of your books and I was just thinking about how much volume how much stuff you've written, and that's just the stuff that's been compiled in the books. Would you say that writing gets easier in time? No, no, the opposite. 
I mean, I was, I was a much faster writer when I was younger, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is there is a physical aspect to writing. I mean, it, I, I didn't really ever consider this until I got older, but um, I could write physically, write and type much faster when I was in my twenties and thirties. But the main reason it gets harder is because I think any person who cares about you know writing and what we do or you know whatever the way you however you want to look at what I do for a living journalism or whatever fiction nonfiction whatever I'm much more critical of the work itself whereas when I was young I didn't care as much I didn't care as much what how it was received by other people like I I didn't think of it that way I didn't I didn't have anything to compare it to because I felt like I was doing something almost in a vacuum, you know? And now as I've gotten older, I've experienced more and I've met smarter people. And, and I, I sort of have also seen how the early work was received by people and sort of how that has had consequences in my actual life. Now I almost write as if I, I'm writing things but I'm also almost reviewing what I'm writing as if I'm the critic of my own work or whatever. And that does make writing more difficult. I, I can't, I can't do it the way I used to. Something that you said in, in one of your essays, this was in the Jonathan Franzen piece. You said okay. that your curiosity is impersonal. Is that something that's intentional? Do you have to get into a certain mindset? Have you trained your mind to be that way? Well, I, I, I think my curiosity is, in general, impersonal. Because, to me, if it was personal, it would mean, I want to know these things about Jonathan Franzen because I care about Jonathan Franzen. And I want to know those things about Jonathan Franzen because he's interesting to me. And that, to me, is the difference. Like, uh, I don't know if this is a good quality or a bad quality. I, I'm not really sure now that we're talking about it. I've never really thought of this before. But there are many things that I am very, very interested in. But I'm emotionally completely detached. So it's almost as though, even though I'm interviewing a real person, it's almost like I'm interviewing a fictional character and it's happening within a novel or within a movie or something. I, I just, I find it fascinating, but I don't, I find it intellectually fascinating more than emotionally fascinating. So I think that's what I mean when I say my curiosity is impersonal. If I ask someone a question, I want to know the answer, but regardless of what they say, it won't really impact how I think about that individual, which I think in a way is a huge advantage as a journalist if the subject I'm interviewing realizes that. I mean, like I interviewed Kobe Bryant or whatever. And I was talking to him about the rape accusations in Colorado. And I think in a sense, he liked the fact that I just seemed to want to know the answers that I, that I wasn't trying to figure out how I felt about him based on his answers. And I think that's just kind of the person I am, but you know, I was, I was very lucky. You know, when I was in college, I had all these friends and they didn't know what they wanted to do with their life. And they were, that was the biggest issue for me. It's just constantly wondering what they were going to do with their life. And I kind of fell into doing journalism. And it turned out 
that A, I could really do it immediately, and B, it was fun to me. So I, I had a sense of what I wanted to do with the rest of my life when I was 20 years old or something, or 19 years old, and there was no process to it. It was almost as though it's like, it would be like if somebody fell into a river and realized, oh, I'm a great swimmer and I love swimming. You know, like it was, there was nothing, I had no agency, it just kind of happened, you know? <laughs> Something that I've wondered about you for a long time is, did you ever worry about hurting someone's feelings with something that you wrote? You know, when I was young, no. And then things in my life changed. One is I became more mature and more thoughtful. Another is that I started publishing books and suddenly people were writing about me. And I'm, I realize I'm not the only person this has ever happened to, but I do think one relatively unique thing that, that I've experienced is that I spent, you know, probably 15 years of my life or 10 years of my life only writing about other people. And then I had a five year span where I interviewed almost no one and only con was just interviewed by, by others that like suddenly I was the subject and then kind of moved back to where I was doing both. And, and now I think I am much more empathetic about the way I uh, profile other individuals. I mean, certainly when I was young, when I was working in newspapers and I would interview somebody, I didn't think this consciously, but I think unconsciously me and a lot of people like me were almost waiting for someone to make a misstep, to say more than they wanted to, or to speak a little too freely about something because that made the story so much more interesting. But now I really have come to understand, and I should have known this all along, but some things just take time, that like to catch somebody misspeaking or to sort of quote someone accurately, but in a way that doesn't precisely reflect the way they think of the world, that's basically as bad as making up a quote. I mean, my goal now when I profile someone is to try to reflect their worldview as accurately as possible. In other words, I don't want to quote them saying anything that isn't how they actually feel. So to answer your question quickly, yes, I, I do worry about that. How important would you say honesty is in all of this? Very. It's probably, probably the, the, most important moral quality. I mean, to me, the two most important qualities in what I do is for it to be interesting and for it to be entertaining. When I write a book, that's the main thing I want people to feel about it, that it was interesting to read and that it was an entertaining experience. Even if it wasn't the, I mean, not necessarily entertaining the way a TV show was entertaining or something, but just entertaining that, that it was a kind of a kind of an intellectual form of entertainment. They enjoyed the process. The most important quality though in that is the authenticity of the work. And authenticity and honesty are, are kind of interlocked. Well, when you think back about all these people that you've spoken with, 
Is there anybody that you, you find yourself still thinking about? Somebody that you found especially fascinating? Huh. Um, it's odd. I guess not really. I mean, or not any more than I would if I had not interviewed them. I mean, like I interviewed Britney Spears when she was pretty young. So when I see Britney Spears now, uh, part of me remembers the person I met, looks at the person I see now and thinks about that sort of trajectory, the evolution of her, you know, trajectory of her evolution. But there isn't anyone who I think to myself, boy, I wish I could interview them again. You know, I mean, like, if I do a piece on, like, Eddie Van Halen to me is a very fascinating person. I loved his music and, and I've thought about his music in some ways, maybe at times more than he has in a weird way, because that happens a lot with artists and fans that, Something that an artist does is a very temporary thing for them, but for the fan or the consumer, they have this long relationship with it. But in the same sense, I guess that might be how it is for me too as a, as a journalist, because I will often be asked about old interviews I did and, and I will almost find myself saying, well, you might have a better answer than I do because I'd have to go back and read the piece. <laughs> I never go back and reread anything I write. And as a consequence, you know, particularly like, or like Fargo Rock City, the first book I wrote, I wrote that when I was 27 and 28, you know, 28, mostly 28, I guess. If you read that book last night, for example, you would know way more about it than I did. I mean, I, when I wrote that book, I read it a thousand times because you're constantly, you know, editing and rereading and changing things around. But... I've never went back and looked at it since it was published. I mean, I so so there could be things in that book that that I would have almost no relationship with. That if you asked me about, at best, I would say that sounds like something I might have said. <laughs> hmm. So why don't you read the stuff that you wrote? That seems terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I go back and I read what I wrote in the past, and all I want to do is rewrite it. I, I just you know. Because sometimes you have to, right? Like something came up recently where I had to go back and reread a piece I had written about Rivers Cuomo um, and like Ralph Nader. And, and this, this is from a book called Eating the Dinosaur, which came out in 2009. So I had to go back and read this essay. And it was just torture because I was like, why did I use all these semicolons? Or like, why, you know, that's a completely unnecessary adjective I have in there. Like, you know, it's like I, I just am immediately back in the constructive phase because when I'm writing something the first time, it seems great. <laughs> like when I'm just writing, like when it's coming off my fingertips and appearing on the screen, it all seems amazing. And then I read it a second time and I'm like, oh, oh I'm so great, you know. But then by the third time, it's like, oh, this is. This is not the way I want it to be. By the 10th time, it seems bad. And every time after the 10th time, it just seems worse. So, like, I I can't – I am always just shocked when I talk to writers who enjoy going back and reading their own work. I just – I can't imagine what that feels like. I mean, it'd be, I wish I could. I, I think that if I could – I would love to write a book that I would love to read 10 years later. That would be very satisfying. I don't think it will ever happen. <laughs> you were mentioning a moment ago Britney Spears. Do you notice 
or did you notice any common thread about ultra-famous people like Britney Spears, Taylor Swift? Was there something that they had in common? Well, yes, there is something that they have in common, which is, um, okay, there's, there's solipsism and there's narcissism. Narcissism, okay. Solipsism is this kind of obsession with yourself. And narcissism seems like solipsism, but it's slightly different. It's an obsession with how yourself is perceived. And that is the thing that many, many celebrities either seem to kind of inherently have or uh, the experience they have of being famous forces them to think this way, where they may get into art, to music or film or writing or whatever, because they have a little bit of that self-obsession. And both of those qualities, I should say, like a little bit of those qualities are important to have for anyone. You have to have some obsession with yourself to be a happy person because you know if, if you don't think yourself is interesting if you don't think your own life is interesting that's a problem and you have to to a degree care about how other people perceive you because if you don't have a little of that you know uh, you'll become abrasive and unlikable to other people but i think with artists a lot of times they start with a preponderance of the first quality this idea that they're into what they have the ability to create and then over time, it shifts toward that other category where everything they do becomes an extension of how other people assume or view their quality as not just as an artist, but as a person. And it's a tough thing because I tend to be particularly interested from as from a writer, as a journalist with the super famous, like a. Like I find that to be like when it's Britney Spears or Taylor Swift or Bono or, you know, it's like, like, uh, those people to me are, are, are interesting. Whereas somebody like Stephen Melknes who's famous. I kind of just want to talk to him about the music he made with pavement or his solar work or all of the, his relationship with the other guys in pavement. But that's not as interesting to me as Britney Spears relationship with the world. You know, or, or someone like Taylor Swift, who is famous to people who don't care about her music at all and couldn't name one of her songs, but see her as a famous person. I interviewed Taylor Swift in Los Angeles and we came out of this restaurant and she said, Oh, there's a paparazzi here. And everybody was like, Oh, no, there's not. We're in this weird restaurant, but she was right. So this paparazzi snaps a photo of me and her coming out of this restaurant. I probably had more people email me about that photo than any book I've ever written. Hmm. I mean, because it ran in like the Daily Globe or whatever, the Globe and Mail in England, but it went on like Getty Images or whatever. And, and people I hadn't heard of, you know, heard, heard from in 25 years contacted me. And it's just what that just shows you is how there's like these different levels of fame, but the highest level has almost no relationship to what you do as an artist. It's just, it's a toy. It's like you had to be an artist to get there, but now it's just a totally different thing. Well, what do you think people get wrong about celebrities? Like a misconception. Well, I, I you know, here's, here's the misconception. Okay. If you, if you talk about celebrities in general, like if you say to somebody, Oh, you know, uh, do you think 
rock stars are all happy. They'll be like, oh, of course not. It's like we all know that, like, you know, people who are famous are often depressed and dealing with problems, you know, from their childhood or their life. And and they're using their fame as a way to compensate and all of these things. And everybody knows that money can't buy happiness and all of these things. But if you then give a specific celebrity, the assumption is, well, they must be happy. Like, even though the caricature we know, you know, every movie that's made about sort of an anonymous, faceless musician uh, or film star is always about sort of their alienation and sadness and depression. But then if you say like, well, okay, but now the person is Jennifer Aniston. The reaction is like, well, she's got to be happy. She's so rich, you know, and she can date all these different people and she has this big house, you know. And what they have to realize is that the caricature, which they know is an unhappy person, comes from these real examples. And that what the main thing that fame does is just take the person you already are and amplify it. So if you are kind of at your core an unhappy person, fame is going to make that work. Hmm. Well, not just famous people, just anybody, through your experiences with interviewing, was there a certain technique that you used in order to get people to open up? Well, you know, there's there's kind of two ways you can go about doing it. One way, which is the way what, what, which most people attempt, is to try to shift it from an interview to just a conversation to make the person feel to, to make the person like you and feel comfortable with you, sort of see you as not a journalist and and that kind of to let their guard down. But I, I always thought that was, I don't know. For one thing, I think it's kind of fraudulent. For another thing, I think that that's when people get betrayed. And thirdly, it, it takes a long time. I, I don't, I'm not the kind of person who wants to spend two weeks with some celebrity to do a profile. I want to spend one day with them. So what I do is I sit down and I say, like, hey, look, okay, the only reason I'm here is because I'm a journalist. And the only reason you're here is because someone set up a situation for us to talk. And none of this is real. This is a constructed scenario. But there are things that I actually want to know about you. And I'm just going to ask them. And I want you to answer them. And I'm always surprised by how much people respond to that. That, like, that, that, they spent, cause you know, somebody who's a celebrity spends so much of their life surrounded by insincerity and people pretending to be their friend and all doing all of these things, you know, to create the illusion of normalcy. So I sometimes think if the person is smart, I'm just going to tell them what's really happening here. And if they're not smart, well, it wasn't going to work anyways. You know, if, if a person doesn't have the level of self-awareness to accept that we both know this is fake, it's probably not going to work. Yeah. Throughout your years of doing this, was there ever anyone who made you nervous? When I had my first, yes, yes, but they had to do when I was young. Okay. So I, when I had an internship, when I was a senior in college, I had an internship at the Grand Forks Herald, which was a daily newspaper in the town I went to college. I went to the University of North Dakota. And at this internship at the newspaper, there was going to be a Ross Perot rally. 
And so they had me write about the Ross Perot rally. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, Ross Perot agreed to give an interview to the newspaper. So the editor was like, well, hey, you covered this rally. You got to talk to Ross Perot now. I think, you know, it's like it was only like 10 minutes or whatever, but that made me nervous because it was like I just had never interviewed a national figure. Here was somebody who just run for the presidency. Uh, and I didn't know anything about NAFTA. I had to learn all this stuff about NAFTA in a day and all, you know. I was nervous about that, but it worked out okay. Then the next year, I had a job in Fargo, North Dakota, and Motley Crue was coming to Fargo. Now, when I was a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grader, Motley Crue was my whole life. They were my first band that I loved, really loved. And, and you know, I, I had posters of Motley Crue all over my bedroom, you know. And now I'm going to interview Nikki Six the bass player of the band, the songwriter, all of these, you know, every, you know, it's like, it's almost a situation where I would not have believed that could have ever happened to me when I was a ninth grader. I would have never thought to myself, you know, in less than 10 years, you're going to be interviewing this guy from Motley Crue. So I was nervous, but then the instant the interview started, it was like, he was just another guy in a band, like, like almost instantly it stopped. It just was gone. I don't know if I've really been nervous about an interview since. I mean, I've been nervous about the possibility of doing a bad job in the interview, like not asking what's need to, what needs to be asked or maybe meeting the person and them having just them just stonewall me the whole time. But I'm never nervous about the person because they're famous or anything. That's I, I, I really haven't had that experience. And I, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I just, there are many things in life that make me nervous, but meeting people is not one of them. Well, what what would be something that would make you nervous? Um, having to go camping. My wife is gonna. My wife wants me to go camping this summer, and I'm just I'm already dreading it. Um, extremely long plane flights. Not because I'm afraid of flying, but because I hate being bored. I hate being stuck, and I'm like kind of tall. Like I'm like six two, so a lot like planes are real uncomfortable for me. Driving in a city where I don't know where I'm going, I hate that. I hate merging because I'm always afraid I'm going to cause an accident because I'm never exactly sure what eggs to take. I don't like uh, what are the things that make me nervous. I mean, I I get nervous about the possibility uh, of like any time my phone rings and it's my kid's school, my first thought is, like my kid is dead. Oh my! So God. I'm like you're like like I just it's always the first thing that I think. You know I'm I'm I I am incredibly consumed with my kids being okay to the point where I'm very nervous that I might be one of those helicopter parents. I think I might be because when like when they're at the playground, the other parents seem to like they can mingle and chat, and I'm always always watching my kids. I'm always afraid they're going to fall off something. Hmm. Was there anyone you always wanted an audience with, but it just it just never happened? Someone that Axel, was Axel Rose. I've been waiting. I've tried to interview Axel Rose starting in nineteen I don't know ninety something. I bet I've requested to interview him twenty well ten times for sure. Like at every newspaper I worked at, at Spin, um, uh, we tried to interview him. At GQ, we, I tried to interview him. Um, Esquire for the New York Times Magazine. I've just, I've, I've, I've 
tried so many different times and it just never happened. Well, what's something you would have asked him or you would ask him? Well, I mean, at this point, you know, I would ask him about his personal evolution just as a guy because he's just a different, he's a totally different person than, than he was when he became famous. And, and I would like to have him sort of discuss how he views the younger version of himself and how a record like Appetite for Destruction sounds to him since like anybody else who we're talking about nostalgia, he's going to be transported back to that period in his life when he made those songs. So he'll be transported back to the person he was. Well, how does somebody like you view a publicist, for example, the gatekeeper? Well, you know, that really changed as I changed from job to job. When I was, in Fargo at the newspaper, or when I was in Akron, Ohio at the newspaper, the publicist often seemed like an obstruction. They were always seemed to be stopping me from doing my job. When I got to spin, when I got to GQ, it was the opposite. They seemed to go out of their way to facilitate it. So my idea about the publicist is almost like it had nothing to do with them. It just has to do with the way they are kind of forced to do their job. Which is that they are, you know, there, there are publications they care about and publications that they don't. I had no, like, my relationship with publicists when I was at newspapers was very bad. It was much better when I was at Spin Magazine. They were very helpful. So, I mean, it's, in terms of gatekeeping, I mean, I've published now you know, 10 books or whatever. So I've always had a publicist. I've had probably four different publicists or five different publicists over that period. And some have been good and some have been great and some have been bad. And, and it seems as though the main, the main thing that, that dictates how good they are is the degree to which the publicist understands you. Like the degree to which the publish, the publicist understands the artist. Uh, it's interesting. Why do you ask that question? Why? That's, well, I was just curious, like, for example, you were mentioning Axel Rose. If you had a chance to get at him, you know, get, get an audience with him, but it meant going around the publicist, how does Chuck Klosterman view that? Do you do it? Do you go around the publicist? Um, well, I mean, it depends what, who, who, I'm, who I'm writing for. I mean, if, if I'm writing for GQ, you can't go around the publicist because – you're not just talking to the person. You're also setting up the photo shoot and you're doing all these things. Like you kind of have to work in orchestra. But if I'm writing a book, then I absolutely would. Like right now, I'm working on, a, 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 I'm going to start working on a new book. And one of the guys I need to talk to is Tom Schulz of Boston, the band Boston. And he's like the brains behind the group, but he never gives interviews. And he's like, a, you know, uh, he's just like a notoriously reclusive person. And I just can't find this guy. And I've tried to go through publicity channels and it's not working. So now I'm trying to find any way to get to him because I, I'm not doing something that has a lot of moving parts. I'm doing a thing that has one piece, which is that I want to ask him certain questions and I need to ask him something that he'll want to talk about. So I just got to find him. When it comes to like a book signing or some kind of event where people that know you, people who are fans of you, 
They're meeting you. Do you notice any commonality amongst the public, of the people who are your fans? Um, well, you know, I, I've been doing this long enough where there's now been like a, almost like a generational shift. I mean, when I first started doing, you know, book signings, and this is 2000, 2000, 2001, 2002, it was a lot of people who were very much like me at the time. There were people roughly my age with very similar interests. It was almost as though I would show up at a bookstore and there'd be 25 people sitting there, any one of which was almost like a clone of me. Then as the books got more popular and I got older, the audience became more diverse, became more female. And then my popularity kind of peaked a few years ago. And now I'm kind of on the other side of the mountain. And now it's often people who have either been fans the whole time I've written and now they've kind of aged with me, or they're this totally new person who's like a, a a new version of the young person I used to used to read my books twenty years ago or whatever. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think the biggest commonality among Pete, the kind of person who goes to a book reading in general is somebody who just you know they don't just like reading the books; they like thinking about the books. They want more. Like, you know, they want that, that, that their engagement is so high that the 280 pages isn't enough. If they want a little bit more, they want to know what made this book happen. They want to know if the voice, particularly with nonfiction, if the voice that they kind of imagine in that book matches the voice of the real person who typed. So I would say if the one commonality I would say is, is a, like a, maybe a little, deeper level of curiosity about what makes themselves happy or interested in something. I'd like to think that at least. What is it like when people are in awe of you? Weird. Doesn't happen that much. It's flattering, of course, but weird. What would you say the best compliment someone gave you was? Um, the best compliment... Well, you know, it's odd. I, I, the first thing I thought about has nothing to do with writing. It, I used to play basketball when I was in college. I mean, I played in high school and then, you know, and then in college, I would just kind of play pickup basketball, but I was still in pretty good shape and, you know, and I was still okay. And I had met this this guy at a party. He was a real good basketball player. I met him at the party and we kind of had a fun time. And then we ended up on the same basketball court and we played a game. And after the game, he came up to me and said, I thought you were just a booze hound, but you're an okay basketball player. And for some reason, that meant a lot to me at the time. <laughs> Is there something that you hope people get out of your books? Does that concern you? Is there is there like an ideal thing that you're trying to achieve? Oh, I can't, you know, yes and no. I mean, 
anytime you write something, particularly if it's attempt to be persuasive or to make a point or to sort of offer an idea, you're hoping that it will sort of change the way that they perceive the thing you're writing about or if it will deepen their enjoyment of that thing or maybe make it more, uh, you know, take something simple and taking something simple and making it seem a bit complicated or taking something very complicated and simplifying it. All that is true. But, you know, at the same time, the main thing you want is just that the person enjoyed reading it. I mean, I know that sounds reductionist, but that's really what I care about. I mean, is that that somebody would read something I wrote and they would, they would feel as though it was worth the time that they did it, that they didn't get bored that like that, that the whatever amount of time they invested into consuming that work is time that they feel was like well spent. I mean, for the most part, in order to do this for a living and succeed at it, like you can't figure out what people want. Because people don't know what they want until they get it, right? There's no formula to succeeding as a writer. You know, there's just none. All you can do is write about the stuff you're interested in and hope other people are also interested. So when I'm writing, I'm writing for myself. I really am. It's like to entertain myself. But then there's a point where I publish it and it goes out into the world. And that's, you know, and, and I know that in order for me to keep doing this, uh, I need to have the books have some degree of success. Like, like I have a, I have a real, I'm very lucky. I have a wonderful life. My entire life is basically sitting alone in a room, kind of making things up or working with ideas. It's really a life of the mind. But for that to happen, the books have to be popular. And the thing that makes a book popular is someone reading it and being like, I got to tell my friends this is good. Like, I, like it, it, something about the book made them happy or or made them interested. So I guess in a real simple way, that's all I want. You know? Do you think that there's any misconception that people have about you? Oh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure, I'm sure there are. I mean, I, although it is uh, that, that a lot of times just has to do with the person doing the perceiving. I mean, like, uh, Oh, you know, I, 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 I remember when the early books came out, particularly, there would be these reviews. And some reviews would say I was an ironist. And some reviews would say I'm devoid of irony. And, and sometimes they would say that being an ironist was something good. They liked that I was ironic. Sometimes it would be, oh, it's cheap. It's bad. Sometimes they would say he has no sense of irony. He lacks self-awareness. Other times it was he has no sense of irony. He's sincere. I don't know if any of it on either pole of that was remotely accurate. It's just what someone kind of projected onto it. I mean, that's what people are doing most of the time when they think about anyone that they know of who they don't actually know. Like anybody who's, a, you know, has a degree of notoriety actually met the person. They're just kind of projecting an idea on that person. And then that idea bounces back at him and it seems real. So I'm, I'm sure that there are people who, I mean, I know there's just people who think I'm, you know, a jerk or whatever. It's like that's obnoxious or arrogant or any of these things. I don't think I am, you know, but I'm the worst judge of myself. Everybody is. I mean, 
everybody like everybody has the most information about themselves and he's somehow still the worst gauge of what they're actually like i've just seen this over and over and over again it's just it's like my fear in life is that there's something obvious about me that everyone knows except me and i'll never know yeah. hmm you were mentioning a book that you were working on yep can you tell the listeners anything about it? It's going to come out in May. Uh, the title is Raised in Captivity, and that's kind of all I'm going to say because I think it's a I think it's a bad move to talk about a book before it's available. And here's why I say that. Because if you talk about a book before it's available, people are going to sort of create what they think the book is going to be, and then when they get the book, it's going to be that. <laughs> like once they've made a decision that this is what this book must be, where they when they finally do read it, they just inject that presupposition into the text. So I uh, so I only will tell people the title. Anyone out there that wants information on Chuck Klosterman, they can visit chuckklostermanauthor.com. They can also check you out on Twitter at C Klosterman. I always like to end the Paul Leslie Hour, by just giving the guest the stage. Okay. What am I supposed to do on this stage? Well, <laughs> you have the microphone. You can go anywhere, just completely and totally anywhere you want to go. Let me think. Um, let's see. Uh, what would be a good thing? What do I want the world to know about me? Um, I tell you what, Paul, I got nothing. You know, it's a strange thing. My whole life is built around presenting myself in public. But now when you just say, sit down and do it, <laughs> I can't do it. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what, I appreciate you wanting to talk to me. And I still think it's interesting. I got to say this. I don't know if, if, if this will mean anything to your listeners, but this is the first time anyone has ever asked to interview me by writing me a letter in the mail, in the <laughs> conventional postal mail. That's part of the reason I said yes to this. I get asked by email all the time. I just have never gotten a letter from someone wanting to interview me. I also, I have no idea how old you are. I assume, because you were like interviewing Dick Cavett, I assume that you're like, we're like in your late 60s, but this picture of you makes you look pretty young. What picture would that be? The picture is coming up on, it's a picture oh, of yeah. a guy in sunglasses and a blazer. That's you, I assume. That would be me, yeah. I was born in the 80s. Really? Yes, sir. You have kind of a like a like a, a maturity to your delivery, though. You seem like an older guy. Have people told you that before? Well, there have been times where I meet the person that I interview, because usually I operate on the phone, and they say, "I didn't think you would be a young guy." I would not have thought that if I if you hadn't if I didn't see this picture, I would have guessed you were older than me. But you're obviously not. But I think that reflects well on. You. I think it, it's always better. You know, I always think it's crazy. Like when I meet, like a, say a woman and she doesn't want to admit she's 30. So she tells people she's 29, even though she's actually like 33. I think that's crazy for two reasons. One, aging is the only thing absolutely everyone is doing. So there's no way anyone can somehow look down upon somebody for getting older. But the bigger reason is, if you lie about your age by saying you're young, 
it's going to make you seem as though you're aging too fast. Like, I'm 46. I tell people I'm 50. So I look okay for a 50-year-old. <laughs> Interesting. You know, you said you, 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 you said, I got nothing. Well, let me ask it a different way. If you had to define Chuck Klosterman as best as you could, what would you say? Define? Yeah. Well, I don't know, you know? <laughs> I'd probably just... <laughs> I don't know, whatever it says on Wikipedia. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it really is like, I don't know, man. It's like, I, uh... I, I, on one hand, I think I'm defined by the most basic things, which is that, like, I am a middle-aged white male living in Portland, Oregon. And then on the other side, of course, it's like, oh, who am I really? You know, but, like, I don't even think I want to think about that. I don't think I want to know who I really am. <laughs> <laughs> well, the listeners can make their own conclusions. Sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for all the time. I appreciate it a lot. No problem, man. Thanks a lot. All right. Till next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on The Paul Leslie Hour. <laughs> <laughs>